Eva Yosefkovich has been a book lover since birth and still can't believe that her childhood dream of writing a children's book has come true. She last appeared on In the Reading Corner when her debut novel, The Mystery of the Colour Thief, was published. Fast forward a few years and Eva's new story, The Cooking Club Detectives, is now hot off the press. Nikki Gamble caught up with Eva again to talk about the new book and asked her what she's been up to since they last spoke. It's been a whirlwind few years and I've had a few books come out in the meantime. So um, the one that followed The Mystery of the Colour Thief was Girl 38, um, which is a story actually inspired by my grandmother's life as a teenage girl living in Poland during the Second World War. And it tells the story of her searching for her friend when the two of them got separated um, on a train to the um, to the labour camps. It's a story that I've been meaning to write for many years and I'm I was so glad that I finally got the opportunity to do so because it was one that was really close to my heart. Um, more recently, I also wrote The Key to Finding Jack, which is a story of a sibling relationship. It's written from the point of view of Flick, who's a girl in year seven. Um, her older brother, um, who's in sixth form, he's, he's just basically left school, has decided to go on a gap year to South America and he goes missing in Peru. So Flick is, is obviously distraught, um, like the rest of her family. And she spends many days in her brother Jack's room. And while she's there, she, she comes across a key on a chain with mysterious initials SF. And she decides to make it her mission to figure out who this person is and to see whether they might hold some clues as to where her brother is. Mm. So although these books are very different, there's a little bit of a thread of mystery that threads through all of them is that how you see it yes definitely I do I do love a mystery to solve um and you as you rightly pointed out I think almost unconsciously that's always been the common thread in in all of my stories Mm -hmm. and of course there is a mystery in the book that we're going to talk about today your forthcoming there is indeed yes and I want to start really by thinking about the relationship between the main character Erin and her mother Lara and where they are at the beginning of this story. Yeah, of course. So it's not your traditional mother-daughter relationship. I think Erin and Lara really see each other more as friends, um, particularly because uh, Lara had Erin when she was quite young and she's she's still a, a young mum. Um, it's always just been the two of them because Erin's dad hasn't hasn't been on the scene for, for many years. And at the start of the story, they actually moved to a new house in a new neighbourhood. And they're very happy about it. It's actually it's a bigger place, a nicer place to, to the one that they were used to. Um, and it, it sort of is supposed to be a new start, but it soon turns out to be quite a turbulent time because Lara loses her job. And um, the change that was supposed to be very positive actually ends up being quite a different type of change, which initially is very difficult for the two of them. Mm. So there are two things, really, that this inciting moment in the story um, shows us. One is how tenuous things can be in life. These things can happen to anybody. And then the other strand, really, is that I don't want to make this sound easier than it really is. But partly um, what this story suggests is that in many cases, you can turn adversity to your advantage. Yes, definitely. I think 
in a lot of cases, it you, you might be taking on a very different journey to the one that you had initially expected and planned. But but I think um, it might prove to be a much better outcome for you than than you ever expected. So I think you're absolutely right in in saying that. Yeah. So we're going to have to talk about food sooner or later because that's yes. such a key thing in this book. And I thought it would be nice to start by saying a little bit about why food is so important to Lara. She's always called Lara by Erin, not mum. You've already explained the closeness of their bond. And food is really important to both of them. So it would be good to have a reading from the story that gives an indication of that and then for you to talk a little bit about that. Yes, of course. So so I was going to read a little extract from chapter three, which I think hopefully shows a little bit of, of that relationship between Erin and Lara and also um, talks a bit about um, how their week is structured around food. So it follows actually um, a list that Erin has made of the different meals that they usually have on different days of the week. So here we go. Lara insists that everything has to be homemade. She likes knowing exactly what ingredients go into every meal, and she feels that cooking makes the whole process of eating so much nicer, which I agree with. Lara worked every Saturday until 7pm, but she had most of every Sunday off, unless Mr Rodrigo himself was on holiday and she had to cover. On Saturdays, I used to spend full days at a friend's house, and when Lara collected me after work, she was knackered, so we would treat ourselves to a takeaway. When we lived in our old flat, we had our favourite restaurant, Tasty, which we'd been going to for years. They always knew our favourites, chicken pad thai for me and prawn green curry for Lara. I was on a mission to find us an equivalent here. On Sunday, we made fish and chips. Mm. So, so that um, gives you a, a little flavour of, um, of what their life is like. And as you can see, this is almost the calm before the storm. I really got the sense as I was reading the book that you enjoyed writing about the food. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I wouldn't say that I'm a brilliant cook, but I certainly love cooking and I love um, to see, you know, what I have in the fridge and and uh, figure out what can be made from it. I, I think that was ever since I was a child, I, I always uh, loved that sense of sort of using what you've got. Mm-hmm. So I read that it was while you were the governor uh, mm-hmm. in North London that you became aware of how important a good solid breakfast is mm. for children in order to provide the conditions for them to learn in that it's really that integral to their education experience I'd like to know a little bit more about that and whether this was really the starting point for this story it was absolutely yes. So um, I came across this wonderful charity um, called Magic Breakfasts. They were very new to our school, and they'd only started working with us very recently when when I met them. And I just remembered in every school visit and every every kind of governing body meeting that we had, the teachers would mention what a what a difference these breakfasts made. So. Uh, just to summarise, Magic Breakfast provides a free breakfast for school children in schools across the country now because um, their reach is, is expanding. 
and I, th- I think I didn't I didn't realize quite what a difference these meals made for for kids. Um, I mean, the lovely thing was is that the breakfast was available to to everyone, but sadly, in in our school, as as is the case, I think in you know many schools across the country, there there will be children who just don't have you know a breakfast at home, and uh, they you know they just come to school hungry, sadly, um, which which means that obviously the whole day is affected by that because they don't have the fuel that's needed for concentration and for learning. So um, Magic Breakfast calls it fuel for learning, which I think is a really, really nice phrase that really, you know, highlights the importance of having a good breakfast. So yeah, so, so they, they provided the inspiration for this story because not only were the breakfasts fantastic in terms of enabling children to, to get that much needed energy for, for the rest of the day, but they they also were a wonderful place where I witnessed many children across different year groups and classes who perhaps wouldn't have ever interacted, actually meeting and chatting and having a place where, you know, they, they shared ideas. There, there were music breakfasts that were put on where, you know, sort of the music teacher from the school might come and there might be, um, you know, some some joint singing or some, some joint um, playing of instruments. It was just such a wonderful sense of community, which I which I thought was, you know, so important. And I, I wanted to convey that in, in the cooking club detectives. Really interesting to hear you say that because apart from... Uh, the food, another key strand is to do with friendship. Mm. friendship. Friendships across groups of children from different backgrounds, which are sometimes not written about or maybe written about negatively sometimes, you know, more divide than bringing people together. And yours is a lot about the opportunities to connect. Uh, and there's an important place in your story the Skipton Community Centre, where a lot of this bonding and community building goes on. So maybe we should learn a bit more about that. Yes, absolutely. So I think community centres are um, such an integral part of a lot of children's lives because so much happens there. And actually, for a lot of children, going to a community centre is the only chance they get really to to interact with, you know, sort of other adults and children outside of school in a in a very sort of safe um, setting and in a place where they know that they can speak to adults that they trust. So if they've got a difficult situation at home, they can speak to somebody, you know, at their local community centre and hopefully get the support that they need. So, so yes, so so Skipton is is the community centre in the Cooking Club Detectives, which um, hosts a whole range of different activities. So everything from toddler groups for very small children, which is actually where two of the characters um, initially met many, many years ago and have continued being friends. This is Frixos and Sam, so two, two boys from Erin's school who she later makes friends with too but it's also where there there are various clubs so dance club football club obviously the cooking club um which is the the focus of the story and it's just such a wonderful place for for you know people to come together Mm. so the cooking club is run by mrs gupta to begin with it's offered to the children as during school so it's sort of part of school activity but held in the community centre. Exactly, yeah. And Erin attends that with her friend Tanya and 
you've already mentioned the boys, Sam and Frixus. So they're a little ensemble, really. They are. And they enjoy learning about cooking and cooking on a budget. But at the same time, there's another strand of the story to do with cooking. And that's Lara's story. So maybe we could go there. What does Lara want to do with her cooking? Yes, that's a very different strand. So Lara, um, as we mentioned previously, loses her job in the store, the clothing store that she'd been working at for, for many years. And she initially really sort of has this, this sense that she wants to seize the opportunity um, to do something different. And her passion has always been cooking. And she assigns herself up for this prestigious cookathon, which is a um, TV kind of cooking show which is very difficult to get into and she's she's over the moon when she gets offered a, a chance to to audition for it and the sad news is is that it, it doesn't sort of take her where she wants it to go I won't I won't sort of um, give too too much detail about that but it does offer her the opportunity to blog about her cooking so she uses everything that she's learned from cooking on on a budget and using you know um, good ingredients to make really delicious meals that don't that don't cost the earth and she she starts her own blog which is very exciting it's something that that Erin and her friends end up helping her with um, so it becomes a kind of almost a group project in a way. Yeah, it's quite inspirational and aspirational because you can imagine children doing these things. And these children are very capable because the children actually help her with the technical side of setting up the blog. So it's showing it's giving children a, a view into possibilities of things that they can do, a whole range of possibilities of things that they can do. Definitely. I wanted to talk a little bit about the recipes themselves and access to cheap ingredients. You've already said it's what you can, you know, it's a few tomatoes, eggs, flour, that kind of thing that you might find in your store cupboard. And there's an episode in the story where they might be going to have a takeaway from the chicken shop. They've got £10 to spend. Yes. And the view that with such a limited amount of money, we can for such a large number, all you can do is buy cheap food, and the cheapest food is cheap, fast food. Yes, um, yes, this is the episode where they are at Frixus's house, they're about to go to Frixus's house for lunch. Frixus has a big family, he has many brothers and sisters, and um, his parents often work at the weekend, which is why he and his older brother um, are normally responsible for making lunch so their parents uh, leave them some money and as you as you pointed out Frixus decides that um you know the only real um possibility is to to go to the chicken shop and then Erin who has uh, obviously spent many years with with Lara um cooking from uh, you know and buying ingredients in the shop together so she knows exactly how much things are likely to cost and she says actually let me take up this challenge. Um, I'll take your £10 note um, and you'll have to trust me because I'll cook us up something really delicious that isn't, you know, isn't just takeaway. And she does. And she, they make Frixos's Feast, which is a, a sort of seafood medley uh, or a paella, which fits within the budget and can realistically be made um, for, you know, a, a larger group of people. I think there are eight of them eating. And and it's lovely to make, and it's it's the 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 gang really enjoy the process of making it. Everyone has a role. One of them is is with a particular type of rice. You, you have to do a lot of stirring, so they take turns, so, so that 
their, their arms as it start aching. I should say that the recipes are included in the book. They are, yes, yes. I <laughs> I made them myself. So they're, you know, sort of either recipes that I often make or the adaptations of things that friends have made for me. And that's that's where they've come from. Brilliant. A little bit serious for a moment about um, the idea of access to cheap ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's a really good thing to be promoting to children that they can cook for themselves and that they can uh, source ingredients. But I sometimes worry about people in rural poverty Mm -hmm. that may not have access to shops that sell cheap ingredients. I'm not saying you can solve this as a writer of a children's book or that even things like paying for energy and only being able to cook on one hub. These are other sides of the story as well, aren't they? It is hard. um, And I've worked in the education sector for a number of years, and and that is a real problem in terms of rural poverty. And I do appreciate that it's not it's not often easy and it's not often something that is, you know, just at the end of your, you know, a a good store at the end of your street where you can access cheap ingredients. So I think for those children, it is harder and, and maybe it's more of a case of asking um, somebody at school where, where they might recommend doing your shopping or at your local community centre that might be another another possibility I do totally appreciate that it's not not as easy for, for some families as it might be for others now food is obviously something that's tied in with celebration as well yes and banana bread is the big celebratory uh, food for Lara and Erin well, I want to ask a personal question now about the sorts of foods that really are your comfort go-tos or the ones that remind you of wonderful, maybe family celebration. Well, actually, strangely enough, banana bread is one of them. And this is long before it became a, a kind of pandemic special where many people were you know, making it at home. Um, I, I've always been a huge fan of, of all sorts of banana desserts. And some of them are, you know, incredibly easy to make, banana bread in particular. And it was always a special treat for me and my family, particularly after we'd gone through something that was maybe challenging or, or stressful. I remember after after doing my exams, she would always make it for me because I would, would have gone through a period of, uh, you know, intense revision. And it was a it was a very, very big reward. In terms of other comfort food, this is slightly trickier to make. And I have to say, that um, I didn't include it in the book, partly because I'm not an expert on making the recipe myself. And I feel if I if I you know wasn't able to make it easily, um, it maybe isn't something that I should include. But as you know, from my name, I'm Polish. And um, one of the one of my favorite dishes is pierogi. My uh, my grandmother uh, was absolutely you know fantastic at, at making them with all sorts of different fillings. And so um, it's something that that I always loved making and I helped her out with it. So I would use a glass to cut out the circles of dough that were needed to to make them. And um, I would help her with, you know, putting it all together. So that was a a wonderful dish. Food is often, um, as it is in your book, connected with relationships in that way. Yes. um, Which is, is wonderful. Something else that comes through quite strongly, um, and that's the sense of philanthropy. So um, there's an explicit mention of this because there's a statue in the town to a Victorian philanthropist. But then there's also this notion of modern philanthropy 
um, I won't say too much because it's how the story unravels, but a sense that it's important that we appreciate um, what we have and give back if we can. Is that something that you are make, deliberately making the connection between those two kind of time periods? Wow, I wasn't actually. Do you know I was I was doing that um, unconsciously? But it's great to to make that connection, I suppose, across history because that's very true. I've always been of the mindset that philanthropy is is really important because I, I remember even this is this is a slight side note, but it's I think it's an interesting one. I remember my my dad, um, who loved reading and was a bookseller, um, would always read Polish legends to me when I was younger. And there's there's one that always stuck in my mind about a man who suddenly came to acquire a lot of money, but he wasn't happy because he felt like you know if if he had it, then he, in order to be happy, needed to share it with others. But the the prerequisite of him having it is that he couldn't share it. So in the end, he decided that he wasn't going to keep it for himself because he was miserable if it was it was just for his own use. So I think I think philanthropy for so many reasons is extremely important. But even the very nature of, of giving, I think, makes everyone in the community appreciative important to be given without strings and expectation of anything absolutely absolutely yes the manner in which things are given is so important isn't it yes yes absolutely it's not a transaction it's it's more of a of, of a sense of of sharing and doing what's right by by your fellow human beings really now you don't really touch on food banks it's not a story about food banks but they're very much a part of our society now yeah and we need to really ask the question I suppose as to why they are even needed in a society I I know we're all living through difficult times at the moment but you know we live in a world where there is enough money to feed people properly it is incredibly sad, as you say. And I remember when I first met Magic Breakfast and, and I actually um, did an interview with the charity's former CEO. And I remember him saying at the time that their motto, their, their sort of hope is that they will do themselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. So they really wanted to you know, set, set something up that um, would have a lasting impact in the hope that their work will no longer be needed. And it is extremely sad that it still is. I think the pandemic has actually made the situation of many families kind of living on the breadline um, even more difficult. So I think I think you're absolutely right in saying that in this day and age, we shouldn't have the need for them. And it's, it's devastating that we still do. Mm-hmm. When you were having that interview with the CEO, did he have a vision of how you get to a point where you're no longer needed I mean is it that part of the action I'm not sure that there is that he had kind of one solution in mind but I think it was the hope that perhaps the provision that was currently being offered by the charity might be you know taken over by a government fund to schools is is my is my thought you know sort of an, an ongoing breakfast fund and I know that there have been many campaigns um, around that particularly you know most recently uh, through the work of Marcus Rashford, which has been, you know, incredible in in highlighting the the need for such provision, but I'm not sure there's an exact answer to it. I think it's more around kind of the right channels of support being in place, which which I think it, at the moment it's quite obvious that they're not. 
Can I come back to your story? I know we've taken a slight detour, but there are obviously issues that really interest you to have written this book about this subject. So, uh, but to come back to the story, I don't want to uh, diminish the fact that it is a good mystery. It's called The Cooking Club Detectives, and there is a mystery at its heart. And the mystery is how they're going to protect this wonderful community centre, which is under threat of being sold and therefore won't be available to them for all of their activities. And we've already mentioned this little ensemble of children and the sausage dog, who we haven't mentioned, comes into the story later. I just wondered whether this was a group of children who are going to stick together and whether there are going to be further mysteries for them to solve. Oh, do you know what? At the moment, I hadn't had a plan for further mysteries for this particular group. I'm currently working on a slightly different project, which is linked to slightly, slightly more linked to the legends that I, I mentioned uh, to you earlier, which um, which I remembered reading in, in my childhood. Um, but who knows? Maybe in the future there might be further uh, mysteries for Erin and her friends to explore. Mm, I could certainly see them all taking centre stage at some point in their own stories who knows oh interesting (laughs) who knows indeed oh Evadina it's a delight to talk to you and thank you for discussing such important uh, things to us what can be more important than food friendship and family oh exactly they're they're things that are very close to my heart Um, and thank you so much for speaking to me it's been really lovely in the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.